When our son was four years old, he did typical four-year-old things. Some of them were funny, and some were very annoying. And I found myself getting angry or frustrated more and more in dealing with him, and I realized I had to come up with a different strategy. And so my new strategy was to compose a little saying that I would repeat every time my son did something frustrating. And the saying was simply this, life with a four-year-old. This is life with a four-year-old. So I'd see a mess or experience a tantrum or the crying, and we'd come through all of that, and then I would just say, life with a four-year-old. And it seemed to help. It just reminded me this is the reality of life with a little one. Now, I did say it in his presence, so he heard me. I assumed he didn't really connect the dots. And a few days later, I heard him in another room, and he was playing, and I heard what I thought he said was, life with a four-year-old. And I thought, oh, isn't that cute? He heard what I said, and he's kind of picking that up. Maybe he's taking into heart the little subtle message there that he should change and uh, adjust his life and, and seek Christ and all those things that four-year-olds normally do. And then, as I got closer, I realized he was not saying life with a four-year-old. He was saying life with a 40-year-old. And... I was 40 at that time, so I thought, well, what is he talking about? I'm, I'm the one who is practicing patience here. I am the one who is putting up with his antics and craziness. I need patience to deal with him. He certainly didn't need patience to deal with me. So I think I tried to explain this to him. Caleb, I need to say life with a four-year-old when you don't listen to dad, but you don't need to say life with a 40-year-old. And he was in a good mood, so he probably kind of nodded and just kept playing. And then we came to one of those four-year-old moments a few days later. And after I got him cleaned up, I said, life with a four-year-old. And then he said, life with a 40-year-old. And I said, no, life with a four-year-old. He said, life with a 40-year-old. And I suddenly realized he figured out what was going on. He knew I was talking about him when I said life with a four-year-old. And he didn't like that. So his comeback was to say, life with the 40-year-old. As if to say, Dad, you're not so easy to live with either. And that was the end of that saying, at least out loud. And I would say it to myself and look in the mirror away from him when I had to comfort myself. But thankfully, we're great friends today. We got through all of that. But when life brings frustration, we need to find healthy ways to deal with it. And my question as we begin today for you is, how do you handle frustration in your life? How do you respond when things don't go according to plan? And last week we talked about one significant frustration in life, oppression. And we learned that oppression is prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. And we can experience oppression at work, we can experience it at school, at home, on the bus, in the hallway, anywhere else in life. We can experience oppression from other human beings, from evil spiritual beings, from illness and sickness and life's hardships. And last week we learned how God will respond to people who oppress others. And today we're going to focus on how we can respond in a God-glorifying way when we're oppressed 
or we're frustrated by what's going on in our lives. And it's not by saying life with a four-year-old. God provides something that we all need when oppressed and frustrated. And James will reveal this to us in the next section of his letter. He is addressing those who experienced oppression, the oppression of the wealthy landowners that we talked about last week. And James will reveal something God provides to help us in times of oppression and frustration. But then we're going to look at some different qualities of this provision because James wants us to really dig deep and reflect on and meditate on this thing that God provides. And once we've done that, we're going to come before the Lord with our greatest oppression or frustration that we face in our lives today and bring it to him and then ask for this thing that the Lord provides. And I have prayed that you are going to experience the Lord's encouragement and strengthening during our time today and through this passage. So if you can find James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11 in your Bibles or on your devices, and it's also on page 857, the Bible's in front of you there, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. This immediately follows the section we did last week where James was confronting the rich landowners. So James 5, verse 7, he writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what does the Lord provide for Christians experiencing oppression? Were you able to pick it up? It's mentioned multiple times in that passage, at least four times, and the answer is the Lord provides spirit-empowered patience. So the Lord provides spirit-empowered patience. And in verse 7, James says, be patient, and the farmer is patient. In verse 8, he says, you also be patient. And in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience. So four times the word patience is mentioned. And we need patience from the Lord through times of oppression and frustration so that we can go through those times in a God-glorifying way. And yes, I know it just says be patient. It doesn't say you need spirit-empowered patience, but we have to remember that James assumes the gospel. Remember that? James assumes the gospel. Every command in this letter must be qualified by this assumption. Otherwise, the letter turns into moralism. It turns into we have to do whatever the command says in our own strength, which can be very discouraging. 
But we've seen the need for Christ and the Spirit's help again and again. For example, remember back in James 3 and the section on taming the tongue? In James 3, 8, James writes, no human being can tame the tongue, meaning we need help. We need the Spirit's help. So in the same way, we need Spirit-empowered patience to go through oppression and frustration in a God-glorifying way. And patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit grows this fruit in us when we walk with God. But what, in fact, is patience? If you had to draw a picture of patience or someone showing patience, what kind of a picture would you draw? I was thinking about this, and I think the picture I would draw is of a person sitting in a waiting room, say a doctor's waiting room, but instead of the deep sighs and constantly checking their watch and wondering when they are next in line, the person showing patience would sit there calmly waiting their turn. In English, the word patience means the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. And that is an excellent definition. Patience involves capacity, endurance, and control over our emotions, meaning patience is difficult. And James uses the word makrothume in Greek for patience in these four instances. And you recognize the word macro. Macro means large or long or huge. And when combined with thume, it means long suffering. The old definition of patience, long suffering. A willingness to suffer for a long time in an oppressive or frustrating situation. The capacity to tolerate, delay trouble or suffering without getting angry or upset. But this kind of patience is not a passive defeatism that gives up on God, life, and our own efforts. We need to go deeper in our reflection on this kind of patience. And I think James understood this because he himself goes deeper. And if you tell someone just to be patient without giving them any reason for hope, without giving them any solace or comfort for their frustration, eventually their patience will run out. And James is going to do that by giving us several qualities of this patience that he calls for. So what are the qualities of spirit-empowered patience? Well, quality number one is it, ex it waits expectantly for the Lord to return. Spirit-empowered patience looks forward to the Lord's second coming. And notice James' reference to the coming of the Lord in verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, he says, therefore, in light of what we've just talked about in verses 1 to 6, be patient, therefore, as you're living under this oppression until the coming of the Lord. And then verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we can be patient in oppressive and frustrating situations because the Lord is coming back. Well, how does that help? 
In verses 1 to 6, James has reviewed the Lord's just vengeance that will come upon the oppressor when the Lord comes back. So though we may experience oppression, a remembrance of the Lord's return can empower our patience because we remember, well, the Lord is going to call our oppressors to account and we can rest in the Lord. And James helps the reader picture this with the example of the farmer. For in verse 7, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. So farmers can plant their crops, but they can't make it rain. They have to patiently wait for the rains to come if they will reap a harvest. And in that part of the world, there were rains in October, November, and in March that were critical for the maturing of the crops. So the farmer had to patiently wait. But that didn't mean the farmer just sat around and did nothing. He likely tended to his crops, took out weeds. He may have protected the plants from animals getting in, but he also had to wait for the rain. And we can grow in patience as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Which brings to the, us to the question, how much does the Lord's return impact our lives today? A pastor I was reading about this passage who was commenting on it made a very interesting point. He said he never once heard a, pay, a person long for the Lord's return when their life was going well. It was only when life got difficult that people longed for Christ's return. And he also noted the recurring theme of longing for the Lord's return in American black gospel songs. Many of them were written in the 1800s and what was going on then? They were enslaved. They lived under the constant oppression of slave masters who made their lives miserable. So they sang songs like, there's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar, for the Father awaits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. They looked forward to that life because their current life was so miserable. Or they sang, soon and very soon we are going to see the king because my current life is so miserable, but I have hope. And many of James' readers lived like that under the oppression of these wealthy landowners. So I wonder what it says about us if we don't long for the Lord's return or second coming. It might mean that God has blessed us abundantly, so abundantly with a good season of life that we seldom think about the Lord's return. And if that's the case for us, we need to thank the Lord for his blessings while continuing to look forward with that eternal perspective that the Lord is coming back one day. Or 
it might indicate that we are so self-absorbed that we don't want Jesus to return and interfere with our plans. Or maybe we're so unaware of the suffering and oppression going, around, uh, going on around us that we don't see any need for Jesus' return. Or maybe we don't believe that Jesus is going to return. Maybe we think James got it wrong by saying the coming of the Lord is at hand. After all, it's been 2,000 years. So why worry about it? Yet, we don't know. God, in his wisdom, has kept this information from us for our good. Jesus could return today or tomorrow. And then a lot of our little frustrations would be forgotten. But the big ones, like our oppressors who never face judgment, would not be forgotten for the Lord would call them to account. And when we remember that reality, our patience can grow. So that's quality number one. Spirit-empowered patience waits expectantly for the coming of the Lord. Quality number two, spirit-empowered patience leads to fortified hearts. Verse 8 says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So establish, fortify, confirm, strengthen your hearts. How? It is again related to the coming of the Lord. Our hearts can experience fortification for patience when we remember the Lord will return to make right all that's wrong. This means that even under oppression, we don't have to mope around in defeat and despondency. Yes, it's difficult and requires suffering, but we have hope because the Lord will return to make things right and we need this especially when we look at what's happening in the world if you spend some time looking at the news of the world and thinking about the state of the world you can get pretty depressed we see a growing disbelief in God's existence we see the redefinition of truth we see the deconstruction of institutions like marriage and healthy authority and church and law and justice. We see disease, war, and tragedy. And if we only looked at the news with no eternal perspective, life would be pretty depressing. But the Lord is still in control. The Lord will return, and every day we can participate in spreading the hope and help of his kingdom. This fortifies our hearts and helps us keep going through life's oppressions. Then we come to quality number three. Oh, we've got number one on there. So can we just put quality number two up there for a sec so people can see it there? It leads to fortified hearts. That's what we were talking about. And now we're going to go to quality number three. Spirit-empowered patience endures through suffering. And this is verses 10 and 11. James writes, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. So James gives his readers a couple of examples of people enduring their suffering by patience. And first he mentions the prophets of old. And to be a prophet 
in ancient Israel was a very difficult job because you were called by God to say whatever he told you to say to whoever he told you to say it. And this often involved confronting royalty, those in power, the kings, and the prophets confronted them all for their injustice, their ignoring of the vulnerable, their false worship. But when the prophet delivered their message, things were not over. They often experienced persecution for it. Author Kent Hughes summarizes it like this. Jeremiah, who because of his unrelenting faithfulness in preaching God's word, was cast into an empty well or cistern where he was left to sink in the cold mud. Had, not, had he not been rescued by Ebed-Melech the Cushite and 30 of his men who gently lifted him out of the well, Jeremiah would have died suspended in the muck. Or he mentions courageous Micaiah who withstood the lying prophets before King Ahab and delivered the true prophecy of the downfall of the kingdom. And for this, he was slapped around, thrown into prison, and fed only bread and water. And so it was for Moses with his grumbling detractors, David fleeing King Saul, Elijah facing the 850 pagan prophets on Mount Carmel, and Daniel in the lion's den. And we know that the prophets did not endure perfectly in the sense that they never were frustrated or never got angry. For we know that not to be true. Jeremiah complained to the Lord. Moses got angry and wanted to die because of the load of the people. David failed in areas of his life later on in life. Elijah wanted to die because of the threat of an evil queen. Yet the Lord came to them and empowered them to keep going. So spirit-empowered patience enabled them to endure through their afflictions. Then James mentions Job. And most people know the story of Job, even those outside of the church. It's become a world-famous story of a righteous man who, though innocent, suffered great loss because of the devil's attacks. And you might have heard the phrase, the patience of Job. Yet if you've actually read Job, you discover that he wasn't patient in the way our definition described earlier. Remember the definition? Patience is the ability to tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Well, Job got angry and upset. He complained to God but he never rejected God or cursed God. And I think there's encouragement here for all of us when we face hard times of oppression and frustration and disappointment. God doesn't demand that we just stuff down our frustrations and just remain quiet and pretend that they're not really there. The frustration of Job and Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah were all expressed to God. In fact, lifting up our oppression to God 
seems to be part of the enduring process. We express our frustration to the Lord, yet we continue to trust him. So I think the word that better describes Job than patience is steadfastness. The steadfastness of Job kept believing in God despite his complaint and frustration. The prophets and Job struggled. They cried out to God, but they continued to trust in the Lord. And this leads us to the last quality of spirit-empowered patience. We've seen spirit-empowered patience waits expectantly for the Lord's return. It provides fortification for our hearts. It endures in faith through suffering. And number four is this patience speaks truth to oppression and oppressors. Or to put it in a less um, oppressive terminology, those who frustrate us. It's still okay to speak truth in that situation. I get this from the end of verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So they didn't just sit there and see the vulnerable being oppressed. They spoke out. They spoke truth to the kings and to the royalty as they oppressed the people. And they spoke truth to their oppressors even as they oppressed them. And in the same way, Job spoke truth to his friends who turned into his oppressors with their attempted explanations of his suffering. And Job spoke truth about God. In Job 42.7, we read, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Job refused the wrong solutions offered by his friends, and he instead spoke truth about God. And that means we can speak truth to oppressive and frustrating situations. Patience doesn't automatically mean silence. Though Jesus was silent at times through his trials and crucifixions, other times he spoke up. He exposed the flimsy grounds upon which he was being arrested. He exposed the false witnesses and, and the twisting of words during his trials. And we also can speak truth in our tough situations while recognizing we might not get justice in this life. And remember, we talked about that last week. Don't take vengeance, yet seek justice and seek peace from the Lord. And we must also seek the Lord for spirit-empowered patience. How do we get it? First of all, you've got to be a Christian. You need to be reconciled with God through Christ. And when that happens, we receive the Holy Spirit. And as we stay close to Christ and walk with him, the Spirit grows his fruit of patience in us. And this gift of God helps us through times of difficulty because God cares for us. And at the end of this passage in verse 11, James says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He will provide spirit-empowered patience to those who ask.
And so, as we're going to meet at the Lord's table in a moment, to prepare for that, I want to invite you to think about the most frustrating or oppressive thing in your life right now. Maybe there's more than one. So what is it? Or who is it? Or what's happening? So think about that which frustrates you the most right now or that which is oppressing you the most right now. And as the communion servers come and as we prepare for communion, I want you to offer that up to God and then ask for his spirit-empowered patience to bear with the situation. When we think about Jesus and the disciples, Jesus endured a lot with the disciples. There were times when he sighed deeply, when he was close to frustration, and yet he walked with them and prepared them and cared for them to the moment of the Last Supper when he would leave them, be crucified, be resurrected, and after 40 days, empower them to start the church.